0: This essay is from Cinema Year Zero. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Cinema. Isn't it Romantic by Ben Flanagan. In Leo McCary's Bell of the Nineties, 1934, a Western parody released a few months after the introduction of The Code, May West appears in a stage show as Ruby Carter, where the desirable, good-time girl dons various outfits taking on the shape of a rose, a spider, and the Statue of Liberty. In this truncated comedy, stripped to the bone by the moralism of Joseph Breen et al., West would wrap up desire with animal instincts and transfiguration. There can be only one direct descendant to this moment, Rebel Wilson's feline visage in Cats, 2019. Tom Hooper's adaptation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical is a noted disaster, but the old grumble cat sequence is easily its most successful. Making full use of her phallic tail, Wilson enters the film by masturbating before singing about her sexual anxieties over the mice in her kitchen. When the mice sing the bridge, Wilson winks, dinner and a show, before the scene erupts into a Busby Berkeley musical number. Cats is a nightmare hallucination, sure. But at least it chooses its points of reference well. Like Mae West before her, Rebel Wilson is film star as Mirage. Such is the Mae West paradigm. With complete alienation from the scene itself, she instead surveys it for sex and double entendre. West signified modernism like few others. Long before turning to the movies, she'd displayed a transgressive streak in the theatre world, becoming known for male impersonation and moral persecution for her 1926 play, Sex. She went to jail rather than playing the fine, better for publicity. The persona she then translated to the screen immediately popped in a small role in Archie Mayo's Night After Night in 1932, with an amplification of sensuous femininity that uses her rare voluptuousness and that working-class Brooklyn drawl to draw lucid spirals across screen and soundtrack. Always with an adoring mammy in tow, in 1933's I Am No Angel, she has four. She's a friend to all, particularly the audience. 85 years after the pre-code era, where is Wes Essence to be found? The comedy giants of Double Entendre who followed, Myers, Sandler, Steve Martin, play dress-up as ludicrous characters from their repertoire who often cross racial and gender boundaries. Melissa McCarthy might have been a contender, but she now leans away from comedy, proving herself to be a real actor, as her turn as Sean Spicer showed us. West stays herself, even when forced into period piece in films like She Done Him Wrong, 1933, where she plays a bawdy saloon singer, or My Chickadee, 1940, where she plays a bawdy saloon singer. For Armand White, parallels between West and Amy Schumer abound, in a piece that comes across as contrarian bingo. That Schumer's raunchy comedy is more overtly political is no surprise, and her Inside Amy Schumer sketch show could be a parallel to West's stage shows and building a persona. But across Schumer's film career in middling comedies, Trainwreck, Snatched, and I'm So Pretty, her presence never managed to find a balance. Girlboss politics and sloganeering moralism clashed against a purported dirtbag aesthetic. Schumer's appeal was in her normalness, but her beliefs around always seemed aspirational of the Clinton class. As as White himself asserts, West was beyond feminism. Schumer's aesthetics never make the same leap. It should be stated that quality is no mark of a Mae West film. It is characteristic of her features to be convoluted and rarely funny. Often her jokes seem to require an unnecessary run-up. She's an unforgettable persona, but the films are bad. Going to town in 1935, West's second code on, film under the code, is telling. While she's given the dignity to express genuine love in for Paul Kavanagh, the film also revolves around her hall queen pygmalioning herself into a good woman. What stronger sign of those suddenly more prudish times than that we expected to follow West's journey to the good girl rather than feeling desire ourselves? This might be her closest parallel to Schumer, whose punkish put-ons belie a wish to settle down and be looked after. Couldn't be West, who's always on the lookout for the next step in the socio-economic ladder. This is what makes the mugging and sexualized banter of maligned actor Rebel Wilson the true lateral personality to West. Having appeared seemingly from nowhere as Fat Amy in the musical campus comedy Pitch Perfect in 2012, Wilson's body-positive spin on flirtatious sorority humour made her a standout player of the early 2010s landscape of post-Apatow comedy. In the Australian actor's first lead role, 2019's Isn't It Romantic, Wilson plays a jaded woman who hits her head on the subway railing and wakes up in a romantic comedy where men suddenly become throwing themselves at her as if she was Mae West herself. But Wilson's conception of nostalgia only goes about as far as pretty women. Her costume, a hat and white dress with arm-length gloves, doesn't reference anything beyond our idea of an Anne Hathaway or Julia Roberts comedy. Wilson, though, stands out. Her awareness of her presence in a film, an updating of West's own detachment from the scene. In a typically postmodern Hollywood way, the necessity of the plot to explain away Wilson's winking at the camera as a meta-storyline holds her back from a true expression of the persona. Her life outside of the screen is a key text in the story itself. It's the Earl Wilson, just sadly not a very good one. Instead of a mammy, she has a gay best friend, a trope that might have switched via the camp British butler, as can be seen in West Swansong, 1978 Sextet. Isn't It Romantic imagines itself as the first self-aware rom-com. Instead of its likelihood of being the last, it ignores Nora Ephron's deconstructivist approach where she updated the lights of the shop around the corner into You've Got Mail or Sleepless in Seattle*, designing a rom-com where the leads don't meet. The two musical numbers in Isn't It Romantic are, much like the West Uber, constant use of musical interludes. And similarly, both are covers of older songs, with little relation to the story itself. Isn't It Romantic also exposes the difference in care given to the American comedy film between the 1930s and today, Paramount produced most of West's films, and no expense is spared with floral plumage and ornate an set decoration furnishing the frames. Even when barely a thing is happening, it looks pretty. In I'm No Angel and *Bell of the 90s, West had Travis Banton styling her. Banton, who styled Dietrich in four of her Hollywood collaborations with Von Sternberg, and who did the greatest costuming job of all time in Our Fool's Letter from an Unknown Woman, 1948 was a master of characterisation through clothes, a proto-edith head and her mentor, who combines surrealism, persona and storytelling in his style. West's materialism has never been clearer than in Bella in the 90s, in which her character devises a ruse to win back a collection of diamonds and jewels she's been robbed of, which she herself stole, of course. West's gleeful navigation of the law is another part of her mirage. West plays a con artist herself a few times, notably in Every Day is a Holiday in 1937, in which she adopts a French accent and some of her best outfits. Stop this before I forget who I am, she cries when a fight breaks out. Klondike Annie, 1936, is based, like many of her films, on her own play. Directed by Raoul Walsh and edited by Stuart Heiser, it's the classic American tale right down to its use of some of the laziest yellow face I've ever seen. Is it worse that they don't use paint somehow? West escaping a murder charge, cons her way onto a cruise ship where she flirts with Victor McLagan, then poses as a Christian missionary. It's got a touch of Flannery O'Connor to it, and Wolf shoots with wonderful attention to the faces and bodies of people in the town. But it's also toothless, and there's far too many musical numbers. Around ten minutes were cut, and you can feel their absence in stitching a threadbare film together. Wilson's frat-girl-gone-bad persona goes down this road too, in The Hustle. 2019, when she teams up with Anne Hathaway for a Chris Addison directed remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. This Riviera set comedy should have had the makings of a Paramount style film, but the film is cheap and overlit. As a con artist in training, Wilson is forced to fall over and demean herself, with the handy excuse from a production perspective that it's all part of the deception. Wilson, although equally as confident and desirable to male characters as Hathaway, is looked at with some level of distance. It's seen as outlandish or bizarre that a romantic male would find her appealing. Though men fight over rebel, they're often revealed to be con artists. Where West is in control, utterly confident with her body and her wit, the Wilson comedy always feels the need to explain her appeal through plot machinations. You won't see her having a dance with Randolph Scott patting his behind, unless it's in a dream sequence or part of a con. Rebel Wilson films fall over themselves trying to explain that someone could desire her. West reaches back to her music hall past. Wilson sells theaterland self-loathing. West's best film is I'm No Angel, one of her rare titles not to be censored, and the one which most carefully deconstructs her persona. In it, a circus performer from the wrong side of the tracks becomes a huge star by putting her head in a lion's mouth, and then navigates the advances of various well-to-do men. When her eventual fiance Carrie Grant, shrugs her off, she sues him, resulting in a courtroom set-piece where the jury, the American public, are asked to judge West's moral character. While the system should be against her, even the judge is so head-over-heels that she easily wins the case. A metaphor for West's position at the time, as the highest-paid actor in Hollywood. I'm No Angel director Wesley Ruggles has a quietly surreal eye. Shots of hands performing actions are disembodied from the voices we hear throwing barbs at one another. West's trademark swagger is accentuated through a camera that doesn't cut between one piece of action or another. When she's brought out of to a performance atop an elephant, her body so fixed into a single iconic sculpture that it's no wonder Dali was obsessed with her lips. Wilson never has a comedy vehicle befitting of her persona. West entered the industry by writing her own material, and the victor in the battle for control over her image is largely what divides the pre-code and the following films. Perhaps the only remaining analogue, then, might be the filmmaker Lena Dunham. Across the film Tiny Furniture and the HBO series Girls, Dunham developed a snarky persona of self-possession and economic fortitude. But unlike West, Dunham, the daughter of artists, is from the right side of the tracks. Girls represented a pinnacle of whatever they called mumblecore, and as such was seen as a mainstream moment for a movement that was otherwise defiantly shoddy and festival-based. There's also the fact of Dunham's body, which was endlessly discussed by the media. And it's not just the fact of a normal body being shown on television but that the likes of Adam Driver and Riz Ahmed would find her sexually desirable, and HBO's love of on-screen flesh presented viewers with the shocking reality of the coupling. The show, a fizzy and biting satire of New York millennial life, a hilarious subplot including childish Gambino as Dunham's boyfriend, who she exoticises until discovering that he votes Republican, was a clear response to criticism that the show presented a whitewashed view of upper-class Brooklynites. It was sold as an art object rather than a romantic comedy, hence Tiny Furniture's release as part of the Criterion Collection and the complete lack of interest since in Dunham as a mainstream film star. But ultimately what did Dunham in was her privilege. As the daughter of New York-based artists, Dunham's route for success was apparently easy. Girls made no bones about this fact. Throughout his run, Dunham's stories are in the Philip Roth tradition, showcasing the sexual impulses that undergird power structures of the bourgeoisie. They are a pinpoint depiction of the Barama-era malaise, but that's hardly a crowd-pleaser. West, herself a Brooklyn native from the era before it joined New York, played the underdog to a T. For men to desire her, revealed an animal instinct within the moors and social graces of 20th-century Pilates. Dunham's sexuality only presents wealth back to itself, which is less empowering to a mass audience, like the Depression-era crowds who dug West. It's for this reason that there's no heir to the May West sofa. They're either oafish like Wilson, politically spayed like Schumer, or rich like Dunham. The emergence of a new wave of black female comics, like Tiffany Haddish and Radha Blank, has coincided with the irreversible tide that American comedies remain frightened of the intellectually, sexually and economically empowered women, and that's why they must have the shadow of Mae West. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash year zero cinema.